In the spring of 1990, a geeky, unimpressive Mayopac High School senior attended a concert put on by the school's rock band, Illusion. He immediately fell in love with the keyboardist, a girl named Teresa McClure. He was a sports editor at the student newspaper and assigned himself a profile of the musician. They met in the school library, and the story, out in the April 1990 edition of The Chieftain, was headlined, Rocker's Talent, No Illusion. Having never kissed a girl, the nerd writer called Teresa McClure on the phone. After a few rings, she answered. Hello, the writer said. So, uh, because the story ran on the front page, uh, my dad gave me some money, and uh, I wanted to know if you'd maybe uh, want to go out with me. To the writer's delight, Teresa McClure said, um, okay. For the rest of the school year, she ignored the writer as if he were walking herpes. My name is Jeff Perlman. I don't have walking herpes. But 30 years ago, I was the writer of Rocker's Talent, No Illusion. I'm also the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every week. Today's episode features Lee Monfield, my former Sports Illustrated colleague and former Boston Globe columnist, who happens to be one of the truly great writers of the past century. This is episode number 134, Let's Sling Some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. All right, Lee. I don't want to, you know, Lee. I don't want to date you, but I just want to say, I um, one of the things I do for the, for this podcast is I'll find the oldest article slash clip I can find about someone. And May eleventh, nineteen sixty five, the Hartford Current, New Haven senior wins UFC Freckleton Award. Lee Monfield of New Haven, former editor of the student newspaper, the University of Connecticut, was named Sunday as a recipient. Of the Freckleton Memorial Award for 1965, the award is presented annually for a UConn undergraduate, quote, for contribution to the Connecticut Daily Campus, which serves as a noteworthy example of free and responsible journalism. So I ask you, Lee, where do you have the uh, the Freckleton Award in your home right now? I don't know where the Freckleton Award has gone. You know, I've, I've been divorced twice and I've moved a few times <laughs> and somewhere the Freckleton Award is gone. Uh, I think the Freckleton Award was was basically for spending my time on the, the student newspaper and coming out of college was a 2.3 QPR. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I went back to speak at, at the University of Connecticut once and, 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 and I, I mentioned that while I was talking to the journalism class and, and one heavy set kid in the back sitting next to another heavy set kid in the back punched the other heavy set kid and said, I told you it didn't matter. <laughs> Actually, let me ask you a question because that's an interesting question. Does it matter? I, you know, I, I don't know. May I'm, I'm sure in in other in other you know professions and and life choices, it 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 might matter a lot, you know. But in the world of journalism and 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 writing, even I I don't think it it matters much at all, you know. I, I think uh, I think some of our our, our best writers have. And college dropouts and, you know, ne'er-do-wells and all kinds of things. Uh, you know, sports writing always has had a, a, a strange ne'er-do-well component to it, though, doesn't it? You know, I mean, it used to be uh, not so much now, but but before, you know, you had to tweet and people were on top of you all the time. It, it was like um, the, the, the more you drank and the later up, the, the later you stayed up at night, People just kind of admired you, you know. They said, uh, "Wow!" And he came and he functioned. And and look at these analogies. Wow, um, but not so much anymore. Actually, you know what? I want to ask you a question. And this is uh, this is kind of random. And but I thought of it last night. I um, last night I had to write, and I never drink. I am a non-drinker. But every holiday season, I buy a bottle of Bailey's Irish Cream because I freaking love Bailey's Irish Cream. And last night, I was drinking my Bailey's Irish Cream. And I was trying to write Bailey's Irish cream mixed with hot chocolate, one of the manliest drinks you could ever find. And yeah. <laughs> I was trying to write while I was drinking and I couldn't do it. How the hell did people write three drinks in, four drinks in? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I never did that, to tell you the truth. I, I never did that. I, 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 I did it hungover, but I, I never drank before I wrote or while I was writing. I, I, I don't know. I, there was a guy named Wells Twombly. He, he was a, a columnist up in San Francisco, 
And um, he had gone to the University of Connecticut about, I don't know, six or seven years in front of me. And I had followed his career as saying, that's how I should go and I should do what he's doing. And he was in Houston. He was in Detroit. And then he had became the, the, the king of San Francisco. And, and he wrote this book on um, the history of sport in America. And, and it was a very good, he was a terrific writer. But I guess he, he had like a big jug of Gallo wine that he drank while he was writing, you know. And he, he finished the book and he had cirrhosis of the liver and he died, you know. And he, he was, he was a young guy. I'd say he was like 43, something like that. So put the Baileys and the hot chocolate, you know, put them away on the <laughs> shelf. <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated. So I'm, I'm literally staring at the article, May 11th, 1965. And there's a picture of a baby face, Lee Montville, um, wearing a suit jacket and a tie peeking out. Has it all been worth it going into the field, going, becoming a journalist? Should 22 year old Lee Montville have become a dentist? I don't know. You know, um, on Facebook, Seth Davis, uh, you, you know him, he, he, he's on CBS Sports and Sports Illustrated and everything. And uh, a long, long time ago, when I had started up here at, at, at the Boston Globe, he, um, he he had gone to the New Haven, the New Haven Register where I had worked. And he, he, he called me up and he said, could I come up and talk to you? I didn't know him. And could I, could we have lunch and talk about, you know, what to do? And he came up and we had lunch and, you know, and I, I talked to him. He, he graduated from Duke and all this. And, uh, and we talked about the profession and, and he went on. So like on Facebook, just about two weeks ago, he sent me a message, you know, thanking me for that way back then and all and, and, and sending him off into the future. And, uh, I said, you know, you probably, should it talk to someone, you, you know, who's like a bond trader or someone who's, uh, you, you, you know, in, in some, some hedge funds or something like that, you know, because then you would have the yacht and you would have the big house and, uh, and the whole thing. But overall, I, I think you probably made a good choice, um, looking for fun. And, uh, that's what I would say that it, it's a fun profession and, it, and it's kind of worth it. Yeah, you know, Jack McCallum, when we were out at SI, he once said, um, he was running scorecard and he said to me, you're not going to have the most money, but you'll have the best stories at every high school reunion. Well, yeah, yeah. John Powers is a guy, he worked at the Globe for a long time and he, he went to Harvard and he said, uh, he went to his 10th reunion and everybody looked at him like, like, you know, like he, he, he He'd fallen off the edge of the earth. You're a sports writer. What, how could that be? And he went to his 25th reunion and everybody said, wow, you're a sports writer. What a great thing, <laughs> you know? Uh, um, yeah. Like the world had beaten him down some. And, uh, it, it's a great profession for, you know, for telling stories. Yeah. Jack McCallum's right. As we sit here looking at sports media, uh, obviously we're two former SI people watching a magazine sort of disintegrate. The Boston Globe, you know, that I used to be a meaty, thick paper now is, you know, one eighth of the size. Yeah. Are, are you, um, do you ever feel like you're, you're watching your own funeral or is this just, do you just accept times change and this is what it is and we'll all be on our phones and hey, hey, Skippy do? Yeah. No, I, I mean, uh, I, I always thought I would reach a stage in life where, you know, I could turn around and talk to people and say, Here's what you should do. Here's how you should work. And here's how it's all going to be. And, and I can't tell people anything. You know, I, I just, um, I, I have no idea where this whole business is going. It's, it's a strange and different animal now. And it's a multimedia kind of thing. You have to be able to, to be a one man band and do 36 different things. I, if I was starting out now, I, I, I would, I, I think I would go into screenwriting and video and documentaries and stuff like that. I, I the, the the written word is is under assault, don't you think? It's definitely become an era where it's more about being first than being good, and certainly being first than being right. There, there was a website, Sports on Earth, that was going on for a, a while, a, a, about six or seven years ago, and I was doing things for them, and I was going back to games again. I was going to. Uh, 
to stadiums and, you know, Patriots games and Celtics games and stuff. And it, it, it seemed a far more joyless pursuit with everybody just tweeting and nobody talking. I mean, it was like sitting in a, um, in an insurance company office or something while, while the Patriots were playing a double overtime game or something. It was, it was ridiculous. So let me ask you, because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are younger up and coming journalists, people who want to be journalists. If we go back in time and you're covering, cause I, I found a clip where you covered the, uh, the Super Bowl when the 49ers played the, uh, Bengals back in 82. How would it have been different covering an event back in the 80s? What was different about that was with the, was that, um, George Herbert Walker Bush was the vice president. He went to the game and it was at the Pontiac Silverdome and the, the Pontiac Silverdome had these kind of pressurized doors and, and not a lot of entrances and exits. But nobody could move while everybody, while they got the vice president into his seats. And it was about, I don't know, about 14 degrees out. And everybody was late to the game and frozen. It was, that's my memory of that game. So it probably wasn't a great game for banter. It was just for bitching and hanging around and saying, why did the, the vice president of the United States have to come to this game? And, why is we in this pressurized bubble that has like three exits? I actually have the story. And your lead was, the moment was filled with electric confusion. Eyes were wide. Mouths were babbling. Dreams of grandeur were shooting through foreheads in vivid blue darts. <laughs> so the story is really good. I mean, it's kind of funny. I've actually, I didn't think we'd be talking about, uh, I mean, I brought it up about 49ers Bengals Super Bowl. But I remember always seeing the the footage of the game and just thinking, there is no, even as a kid, there is nowhere I would less want to be than at the Pontiac Silverdome on that day, freezing my ass off to watch that game. Oh, yeah. It just sounded oh, like misery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and the Super Bowl and, and all those big events are very hard anyway. You know, they're, they're, they're so, I don't know, manufactured. You know, you, you don't have much time to, to, to stand with somebody and have a conversation. I'm sure you have no time now. I'm sure it's, all your interviews are, are with the guys standing on little stages, you know, with with Dunkin' Donuts in the name of some bank behind them, you know. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a different animal now. When you were at the Globe and you needed a bird or a McHale or a Parrish or whoever, Jim Rice, whatever, like, were they up to talking to you generally? Was it an easy process? Yeah, they, they kind of knew you. I mean, from from... You know, because you're the Boston guy and they saw your picture in the paper, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Um, but there were times you, you could go to practice and stuff and, and kind of get them over to the side that it, it's all a, it's all a television show now. Um, going back for that sports on earth, you know, everything was, was kind of recorded and, and, and the teams themselves have, have people there recording the words and then, Distributing them, distributing them, them to everybody. And it's very hard to, to find anecdotes. I think now, you know, I, I mean, you, you don't want the same thing that the, the TV people want. You, you want to say, you know, do you own a dog? You know, what kind of dog is it? And how do you, you know, does the dog do tricks? And you want to ask questions like that. And everybody else wants to know, you know, what, what you were thinking, how do you feel, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and the, the, the stories are harder to get, I think. And back then, you, you, you could find a guy and, and say, you know, do you own a dog? And does the dog drink beer? You know, things like that. You were a uh, freaking great, col like great columnist. And I was digging, I was just reading through your stuff. And I just found, I literally just was looking through random Lee Montville columns last night from the Boston Globe. And I found one. Uh, January 6, 1988. It was after Pete Maravich had died. It was called Pistol Pete, Talent, No Title. And your your lead was, there was a sad quality to Pete Maravich by the time he arrived in Boston. He had the tired eyes of one of those clowns painted on black velvet, a tear rolling down the clown's cheek. Too many coaches and too many fans had yelled too many things in too many cold arenas, in too many games, in too many years. Pete Maravich had seen too much, done too much, without enough rewards. What were you trying to do? As a columnist, like what were you trying to do? What was the goal when you sat down to write columns? Oh man, I 
I don't know. I, you, you know, I never even figured out what a column was. I, 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 I kind of decided that what a column was, was that your picture was next to it and it was what you had to say. I would write, I would write a column one day kind of talking to somebody and being very descriptive and, and, and just trying to show you what that person was like and trying to get inside their, their head and, 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 and just kind of spin it out. And I would say, well, wait a minute. That's not a good column. You, you know, I have to have a point of view. I have to, you know, have, have some kind of thing. So then I would write a column with a point of view and I would say, well, that wasn't very good. You know, um, I, I should get back to something descriptive. And I was always fighting myself, wondering what tack I should take. And, and I, I don't know. I, I was always terrified. I was terrified of that big hole in the newspaper and could I fill it up? And, uh, and that, that forces your imagination to work. And, and I guess it, it, it did. How many times a week were you writing columns at your, at your, Highest. I would say five, five, five days a week. Um, you that, know, and then that is insane. Yeah. And then, you, you know, I mean, if you would go to a night game or something, you, you would have to write two columns. You'd write like an early column for, for the people up in Maine who would get the early edition and, and the game wouldn't be done. And then you'd write a whole new column when the game was done. It, it was an interesting exercise in thought. You'd always say, I, I wish I could put a little, um, little agate precede to this, this story and, and say, you know, he, he, he did the best he could, but he only had 38 minutes to do it, you know? And, uh, and he was, I remember I was at one World Series game and, uh, Jerome Holtzman, who, who was from Chicago, he, he was an old time guy. And he hummed when he, when he wrote. And so he'd be humming along. And then to the other side of me was Tom Boswell from the Washington Post. And he kind of twitched while he was writing. So I, I was between a hummer and a twitcher, you know, and you wanted to say, I could have done better, but I was between the hummer and the twitcher. And, and <laughs> you know, and, and then, and then all of a sudden they started playing music over the stadium speaker and, and, it really forced you to to focus in on what you were doing, which which is probably a good exercise for me because um, I'm kind of a daydreamer sort of guy. So you're at a game and it's uh, whatever one one in the eighth inning, and you have to write a column off of it. Are there many times when you don't know what you're going to write column wise until the game is over and you've left yourself with a bare minimum amount of time? I I would always be that way, and and, and there are guys. Like Dan Shaughnessy, who replaced me at the Globe, I know he he kind of has a lead in his head for for what what he's going to write if if the Red Sox win and what he's going to write if the Red Sox lose, and and he's kind of marshaled together some facts in his head. And I I was always like, whatever happens happens, and and just kind of go off on a tangent from there. And um, I I don't know what. What's the best approach? It probably isn't the best approach. The best approach would be to be prepared and then also go off on a tangent. I don't know. Right. Um, I'm looking at the your column. So I was curious what you wrote after the the Mets beat the Red Sox in the 86 World Series. Um, you know, still a heartbreaking moment in Boston oh. history. And you did, a, you did a column of 39 things to say after three weeks of playoff baseball. And you wrote, number one, Number one, the 1986 World Series was only a series of baseball games, a sporting event, a show. Number two, yeah, sure. Number three, the saddest part of the Red Sox loss in seven games is that the historical story of frustration continues. No one, certainly not the players and not even the writers, wants this thing to hang over every little move on the diamond. But to ignore it is to ignore the fact that a red barn is painted red. As a Boston writer, are you supposed to approach it with some empathy toward the teams in your area, or are you supposed to be right down the middle? I don't know. You you would always say you would always say when you would come on a come on a podcast like this that you should be right down the middle. But uh, you know, in your heart, you you kind of know these guys, and and you've been around them, and your your neighbors are all going crazy, and your kids are going crazy, and uh, you know, so you you're kind of 
you're kind of on their side, I think. At least I was. Um, I just remember that that game six with the, the, the Buckner ball. You know, I mean, everybody has a story from that. And the deadlines were such that we had to start writing a, a column, you, you know, in, in the, I don't know, in, in like the seventh inning. And I was writing this column about how the Red Sox had won and, and church bells were going to ring and all in New, all in New England was going to be happy and yada, yada, yada. And I, I was writing on, on this old machine called the Telebubble, which, uh, which had like a little TV screen that you wrote on. And, uh, as I wrote that there, there was a, uh, there was a black and white television in the press room, which had kind of a bad vertical hold, you know, I mean, it would kind of flip a little bit and, and I could just hear things going on and people were gathering around the television and I kept typing about all this stuff. And so the ball went through Buckner's legs on the, the little black and white television and, I had about three quarters of a column of, of the joyous Red Sox win and ending the curse and the whole deal. And, um, I kept that in my, in my machine for like a year and a half. I don't know why, you know, just in case, I guess. And then one day I pushed delete and away it went. So I don't wow. know. Yeah. So the, so then you, you, you had to, you had to panic and go and see if you could go see Buckner and all of that. Um, so, right. So your, your, your column, I have the column in front of you that, en- that in front of me that ended up running and it was called, they were just one pitch away. And your lead was one pitch away from a world championship, one pitch from an end to 68 years of frustration, one pitch, yeah. not close enough. The other column would have been much better. You know, I've interviewed some columnists who say they feel a lot of pressure to capture a moment that I need to capture a moment. It seems like you never really thought that way. Like you didn't. You didn't think to yourself, okay, I need to sit down now and I need to capture a moment. No, I, I think the moment kind of captures itself. I, I would always in the, 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 cra- the crazy times, I would try and step back a little bit and, and not be, I don't know, not, not be all skyrockets and, and, and sunsets, you know, just kind of step back a little bit and I don't know, be more mechanical. Because the the moment itself would kind of take care of the skyrockets and sunsets, you know. You left the Boston Globe for Sports Illustrated. Um, how did that happen? When I got a co- out of college okay. at, at at the University of Connecticut, I said, "What do I want to do?" I said, "I want to be a sports writer." Where do I want to work? I said, "I want to work at Sports Illustrated." How do I get a job at Sports Illustrated? I had no idea, so I called up Sports Illustrated or Time Warner or whatever. And I said, I'd like to apply for a job at Sports Illustrated. And they said, well, you got to go through human resources. And so I said, okay. And I called human resources and I I had a uh, an appointment to go there. And I put on my little suit and I took the train from New Haven down to New York at the designated time. And I went to this woman's office for human human resources. And I was sitting in the, the ante room waiting and there were two guys that, that didn't have their little suits on. They had, you know, like jeans and work boots and stuff. And, and I said, Hey, what are you doing? And they said, we're waiting to go to human resources. We're looking for a job. And I said, well, I am too. And they, they, they said, well, we're looking for, you know, like a, a, a maintenance janitorial jobs. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, I'm looking to be a sports writer. And I went in and of course the woman gave me the big brush off and said, you know, you got to do this and do that. And, you got to grow up. And so I, I I tried to get a job at Sports Illustrated when I was, you know, 21 years old, 22 years old, and uh, was found lacking, never got past that wall. And then 21 years went by and, and Frank DeFord had, had left and, and the, the, there was a big uh, upheaval in, in the, the journalism things because uh, – because they, they they had started the national the, a national sports paper Frank had left for that and uh, I got a call out of the blue to to see if I would come to Sports Illustrated and uh, they hired myself and and Rich Hoffer from uh, from the West Coast kind of to split Frank's money I guess and 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 join Sports Illustrated so. I had always had it in my heart that that would be a great place to go and a great thing to do and it. 
and it was a good timing for me. I'd been a, a columnist for 21 years, and you, you do kind of find yourself repeating yourself. You, there's only so many stories you can do about the uh, the bright young rookie and the aging vet and the whole deal, and and the heartbreak you, and the heartbreak of losing the World Series. Were there any mixed feelings about? I mean, you know, giving up your it sounds stupid and trite, but your your mugshot in the newspaper or whatever, three, four, five days a week, and sort of the the thrill of kind of having that platform uh, in a in a major market. Yeah, you, you know, I I, I had had a, have an agent um, Esther Newberg, um, who, who's, who's kind of a big time sports journalism agent <laughs> in New York, and she said, you know, being a sports columnist in Boston was the best job in the entire profession but but i i, I think i was getting a little shop worn and um and it was good to move on i i I, th- I really think it was good I, I i didn't look back at all a big broad lame question like what did you walk into at sports illustrated what what was sort of the environment what what did they expect of you i don't know i i, I just kind of came in and I, I had i had had a couple of contracts with sports illustrated to, to do maybe um three or four stories a year for them before I went to work for them. Um, so I, I, I had kind of been into that, but it was, it was just an interesting dynamic to go down there and, and, and see all, all those editors that they had and that whole editorial process, which drove me crazy where four different people would, which change is to was and was to is and, and uh, I don't know, it just bothered me, the whole editorial process there. I actually think people don't understand or wouldn't know a lot of people. So I came, I a way younger point in my career than you, but I came from the Tennessean. Uh-huh. And when you, know, when you wrote in the newspaper, you were having one editor. It was quick rush in the paper. If there were mistakes, I usually got it in the paper, uh-huh. but um, it was one hand. And at Sports Illustrated, you said four. I kind of remember at least six different people when yeah. all was said and done. I remember one time I wrote a I wrote a piece, and I read in the magazine, and there was a word I did not know in my story. And I said, "What is this?" And someone said, "No, it's a kind of cheese." Yeah. And I was like, "I don't even know what that is." Yeah. And that that kind of thing could drive you crazy. Sure, I guess you had that too. Yeah, sure, it could. That that's what kind of kind of drove me out of there in the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I just. Um... I, I just didn't like that at all, uh, and and you, you really couldn't argue. You, you you would try to argue, and then they would just say no, and so you'd kind of go away and say okay. And you, but I mean, my thought was that if your name was on it, you know, you, there shouldn't be something about a piece of cheese that you don't know about. You wrote a piece in uh, April tenth, two thousand. I asked you for stories that kind of stood out from your time at SI. And uh, it was in the golfer Payne Stewart died, in, and five others died in a plane crash. Um, and your uh, your lead—I'll just read your lead real quick—was the pheasant hunters are still working on the first of John Hoffman's fields in the early afternoon of October twenty fifth, nineteen ninety nine. There are maybe seventeen hunters in all, certainly fewer than the South Dakota Fish and Game Department maximum of twenty. The visitors who had paid for the right to hunt were mostly from Texas, familiar customers who returned each year from a week's adventure. The locals, John and his brother, Blake, and a couple of their friends provided local knowledge and hunting expertise. You have this really detailed scene in a field with a bunch of hunters, and one of the guys sees his plane crash. Yeah. Um, and it's a, re- it's a remarkable story. It's so freaking good. Um, what do you remember about this piece? Oh, I, I remember everything. It, 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 was, it was probably, to me, like the ultimate story of what Sports Illustrated could do and was, you know? Um, because they spent all this money. I, then I went down to Florida where the plane took off. I went up to South Dakota where the plane crashed, you know. I, I had time to call Air Force people that were sending planes up to intercept the plane that was in the air. And 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 I, I went out to Pebble Beach to to, to talk to, to pro golfers about about uh about Payne Stewart. So I, I made three st- Three, three trips to write that story. I, I bet, I bet Sports Illustrated doesn't do that today. And, and I don't know where you'd find, maybe the New Yorker would let you do that. But, um, 
it was it was an amazing story to write, you know, um, to be down there where the plane took off. And and I remember how clean the place was. It was like the cleanest place you could ever be, the, the, the hangar and all that. It, it was as clean as a hospital could be. It was cleaner. And and to see that it the jet left from there and then took off and then wound up. I'm at the other end, and there's this hole in the ground that um, this farmer has kind of preserved and and kind of put some uh, different markers around it to to keep people away, and and was going to do something, and and just it, it, it was an amazing story to me. Was it a weird transition for you having a month to work on a story? <laughs> well, yeah, but. But a, but a good transition, you know, I mean, that I, I had gotten the feeling at the end of writing columns that, that sometimes you, you would write. I mean, I, I knew I would write, I would write, I don't know, opinions on people that I really didn't know. And I would be just taking other people's opinions and, and kind of, kind of reworking them around whatever event I had gone to. Um, whereas I, I, I said, I'd like to get to a place where I, I could know enough about a person to make my own opinions, you know, rather than, than just take up these opinions on, you know, who's a good guy and who's a bad guy and who doesn't talk and who does talk. And it, it was a nice thing to be able to go and, and, and find things out, you know, but even there, even there, sometimes you would come from Sports Illustrated at that time and everybody would, would kind of shine their shoes and, and get a haircut and, and put their best face forward because they knew it was Sports Illustrated. And so even there, your, your knowledge of who people were or, or how they, how, how they acted was kind of, kind of colored by, by the way they presented themselves, you know? So how do you break through that? I don't know. You, you know, sometimes, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Um, but it, to me, to me, the best interviews are, are like just conversations, just talking kind of like the way we are now rather than prescribed questions. That, that's what drives me crazy watching like these political shows that they'll ask somebody a question and the guy will, will give a very good answer. And then they'll just move on to something else. And you will say, well, why don't you just have a back and forth about what the guy's answer was? And I, I guess that's how, how we make our impressions is through conversation, I think. I think it's the number one crime of interviewing is someone says something. And instead of feeding off of what the person just said, you have question number six, you know, and it was really hard for me when my mom died of cancer. So the yeah. fifth inning tonight when you <laughs> yeah no it, it it's it's and 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 that's what I was saying about about the interviews after games and things now it's all it's all that way you know it's a, it's it's a group interview and the people with the microphones and the lights are the ones that dominate it because um, because they can you know and and it's hard to talk about the mom dying of cancer or. You know, whether you have a dog. I've read, I loved, loved your Ted Williams book, loved your Babe Ruth book. I want to ask you about a book that I never read because it just fascinates me. You wrote a book, Minute, The Center of Two Worlds, about Minute Ball. I don't think it was your biggest seller. You know, we all have those books. It fascinates me that you wrote a book on Minute Ball. Why would you write a book on Minute Ball? <laughs> I, I, I had never wanted to write a sports book. Uh, a guy, Tom Callahan, who, who was a columnist at Washington. He once said, yeah. he said, the dream is to write, to write the big famous book. And he said, you can't write the big famous book. If you write the sports book, you know, I mean, when you pick up Hemingway, you don't see also by Ernest Hemingway, Charlie hustle, the Pete Rose story. <laughs> you know, I had stayed away from writing a sports book for a long time. And, I kind of realized, though, that that sports was about all I knew, and and I said, well, I I don't want to write the Charlie, you know, the Charlie hustles thing, but but I, I did a story for Sports Illustrated on Manute Bowl, this guy coming from Africa, and you know, 
coming over here and, and really was illiterate. He spoke four languages, but he was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. He, he didn't even know how to hold a pencil. And, and, you know, the, he got a 2.9, which was better than my 2.3 at UConn. He had a 2.9 at the University of Bridgeport. And, um, he, he was, he was just seven, seven and, and kind of the oddest looking person you ever saw. And, and he came from, from nowhere to this. It was, it, to me, it was a fabulous story and, and, and still is a fabulous story. And, uh, and so I wrote the book and, and I, I, I sold the idea to a guy, Jeff Newman at, at, at Simon and Schuster and, uh, and away I went and, uh, I had a lot of fun doing that book. I can remember more about that book than the other books, I think. Was he very engaged in the process, Manute? No, he, 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 he wanted money or something. He wanted money to talk to me. He thought it was going to be a billion dollar book. Everybody you talk to that writes a book, they think you're going to make a billion dollars, don't they? And, and so, yep. he, and, and I said, well, I, Here's what I'll do. He had a, he had a charity for for the Sudan Relief Fund, and and I said, I'll I'll I'll, I'll give. I think I gave like three thousand dollars to the Sudan Relief Fund, and uh, so he talked to me a couple times, and I talked to everybody about him, and uh, I mean I I I I, I went to Africa uh, and talked to I went to, I talked to. People in, in Khartoum about him. Um, I, I, I made, if I made a, a nickel, a nickel on that, on that book, it's, it's more than I, I think I should have made. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, I, I didn't make much money at all on that, but uh, it was a lot of fun to do and very interesting. If a book doesn't sell that great and it doesn't pay off that well, but you enjoy it, is it worthwhile? Probably not. You know, isn't that the old thing only? Only a blockhead doesn't write for money, isn't that the the old thing? Uh, I, no, it's probably no. not. But but in every book you you, you do, you say this is going to be Sea Biscuit. It's going to it's going to get the boys in the boat. It's going to be the boys in the boat, and it's going to catch the national imagination. At least at least I do. I'm, I'm a semi romantic that way, and um, you know when they it turns out that. You, you can't find it when you go to the store. You, you, when you go to the bookstore, you can't find your book. And you go, I guess it's not going to be Seabiscuit or The Boys in the Boat. But that's why you trade. It's a lottery ticket, uh, writing a book, I think. It's so funny. I think of Boys on the Boat and Seabiscuit all the time because they're the great mysteries of book writing. And Moneyball. Yeah. And they are the three. Moneyball. We're going to do a book about the Oakland A's yeah. approach to you know a team that's never won anything that nobody cares about. Or Seabiscuit. A horse nobody in the year 1995 has heard of, or boys on the boat about a crew. I mean, it sets a freaking crapshoot. It's inferior. And then meanwhile, I write a book about like Roger Clemens, and it sells 12 copies. And you're like, how is boys on the boat selling millions yeah. of copies? I no, don't get the, it. And the thing is, you, you can't. If you if you went to to your publisher and said, I, I want to do boys on the boat about the University of Washington rowing team. They would laugh at you. They said, we don't want to do a book like that. How do they get the deal in the first place? I mean, I, uh, like Minute was an off the wall thing. I had, had one about a golfer from the thirties, an off the wall thing. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It, most of the time they say, we need to do somebody who's big and iconic, you know, someone we can put on the cover. And people say, I want to buy a book about Muhammad Ali or whoever. It's amazing because the guy who wrote Boys on the Boat is Daniel James Brown. And I'm not saying I'm a big deal in any way, shape, or form. But I have more, I'm have i a bigger name, or I was at the time, than Daniel James Brown. But you're right. If you or I, with all those years at SI yeah. and bylines and books, if we went to publishers and said, how about yeah. this? There are nine Americans, and their epic quest for the gold at the 1936 Berlin Games. They would be like, no, no chance. Big props to that guy because he wrote a great book. But those books are so elusive. I know, I know, and 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 nobody can figure what what works either. You know, I mean, I tried to I tried to do a book on uh, on Will McDonough, who, who who was a writer at the Globe with me, and and later went to CBS mm -hmm. Sports as a, a football expert and everything. And 
he grew up with Whitey Bulger in South Boston and blah, blah, blah. And he, he, he had all these rough and ready stories about gangsters and stuff. And, and I went, I went to my publisher and, and they said, well, that's interesting. Uh, could you write us a, a proposal? And I said, sure. And, and they said, well, make it like about a 20 page proposal. So I, I made a 20 page proposal. I wrote it all out. In the end, they said nothing and, and my agent kind of sh showed it around. And so I, I met with my editor and, uh, he, he, I gave him, he, he said, it has, has to be somebody iconic, iconic. And I went over all the iconic different people and, and Muhammad Ali. I said, why don't I do a book about Muhammad Ali and the draft and all of that? And, and he said, uh, could you write me a couple paragraphs about that? And I wrote two paragraphs and, and the next day we had a deal and away I went, you know, it's yeah. a strange business. Wait, I want to ask you a question totally unrelated to anything. You mentioned Will McDonough. True or false that he punched Raymond Claiborne of the New England Patriots oh, in the yeah, face? Oh yeah, I was there. I was there. I was right next to him. Wait, what happened? It was after a game and the, the Patriots had won and, and Harold Jackson, who was number 28, had, had, he was a wide receiver. Uh, had played with the Rams, but he, he had, he had scored a couple of touchdowns and everything. So everybody was standing around Harold Jackson and he was describing his greatness. And Raymond Claiborne, who was number 29, had the next locker and, uh, and, and he couldn't get through the crowd to get to his locker after taking his shower. And so he, he was kind of pushing people out of the way and McDonough, said, hey, you, you you can't push people out of the way. Raymond Claiborne started to talk back to him, and he went to kind of put his finger on McDonough's chest, and somehow it slipped and went up into McDonough's eye, and McDonough just decked him. He, he whacked him, and he went flying into the locker, and, and McDonough followed him and started. And I thought, I thought there was going to be a, a big fight, you know, um, drug-addled athletes against uh, – against sports writers and I was looking for the, the, the field goal kicker if, if, I, if it was going to happen for me. It, it was a moment. It That's was a amazing. Moment. Is that the greatest moment in sports writing history? You know, it was nice and nobody sued anybody and McDonough and Claiborne made up and, and they became pretty good friends in, in the long run. I, I, I hate these things where people wind up and they get shoved or something, and they, they come back with a neck brace and say, I'm going to sue you and all that. What's your greatest moment or what pops into your head as far, not greatest, but as, as far as an athlete or a coach or manager being particularly pissed off at you? I had one thing with Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs, he had an eventful time with the Red Sox, and, and the, the, there was a whole thing about he had this girlfriend, Margot, and everything, and, and we all used to, we, we all used to write about Wade Boggs and Margot and this and that and all this weird stuff. He never said a word. I wrote something about, about like 40 years from now, Wade Boggs will be, will be, be like 65 years old and he'll still be able to come up a left handed bat, you know, to come off the bench and, and take a hit. And it, that somehow rubbed him the wrong way. And he started yelling and screaming and chasing me around. To, and it was kind of a good thing I actually wrote. It wasn't about Margot and all this stuff. It was, uh, it was kind of hilarious, but I never had many big things. I used to pick the, I used to pick the football games uh, in the paper and I did it kind of, kind of in a, in a joking way. And the Patriots were terrible at that time and they had a big upset. And I came in once they opened the door to the locker room. And like the whole team was gathered around and one guy had my column and they lit it on fire. I said, uh oh, that's not a good thing. <laughs> I need to talk to you. We need to speak about this now. The, um, you sent me a column that you wrote back when you were at the Globe in 1987 that you literally could have written today. And I'm just going to read a bigger chunk than I usually do. It's called Trump Mania. And you wrote, Donald Trump is looking at me again. I'm in the barber shop and he is in a month old people magazine and he is looking. One of the 25 most interesting people of 87. That's Donald looking. He's caught in one of his basic poses, arms folded across his chest, eyes staring into the camera as if he is Clint Eastward on a promotional tour for High Plains Drifter, 
A couple of giant staircases are in the background. A mammoth oriental rug is on the floor. Mirrors are used as wallpaper. A couple of marble statues stand at attention. Donald is wearing a white sport jacket and that probably cost a billion a billion dollars. One sleeve is pulled back enough to display a watch that probably cost two billion. That's Donald. I cannot stand him. And the whole column, which I swear to God could have been written, I'll post this on my website, could have been written today, is your bashing of Donald Trump. And I want to say, uh, as a representative of the future of 30 years down the road, thank you for writing that. Yes, well, thank you. I'm, I wish I knew more, more about the future in a lot of other areas, you know, something like investing or something like that. But he, he's just rubbed me the wrong way, you know, forever. And I, I used to write a Sunday column in the, in the, in the Globe Sunday magazine. I did that for five or six years and it just hit me. I, I just, I couldn't stand him. Couldn't stand him then, and I can't stand him now. I want to ask you one more thing real quick that I, I, I almost forgot. I have a column in front of me that you wrote, and you probably wouldn't remember the column, or you'd probably remember being at the fight, but maybe not the column. You covered the, you covered the, the Marvin Hagler-John Mugabe fight in Las Vegas in way back in 1986. And you had the headline was, Boxer's Blood Flew in Memorable Fight. And... You did something in this column that I, I, I really try to do on my own, and, and you're just better at it than I am. But you wrote, the patch of blood on the side of John Mugabe's stomach is what I somehow will remember best. <laughs> I do not think Mugabe will remember it. And I'm not sure Marvelous Marvin Hagler even saw it, but I somehow will remember. And your whole lead is about this little splotch of Hagler's blood on John Mugabe's stomach. In fact, almost the entire column is about John Mugabe's, the splotch of blood from Hagler on Mugabe. I'm a huge fan of taking the little and finding something big in it. And I feel like you're really, really, really good huh. at that. I always kind of wanted to do that, to, to, to find, find the small thing that illustrated the bigger thing. And um, for sure, Blood and John Mugabe went together, you know. Um, John, That was John the Beast Mugabe. That was his nickname, the Beast. Marvin was, was a great thing for for Boston sports writers. Marvin took us all around the country, took us to Vegas, took me to London, England when he won the world ch championship against Alan Minter. And uh, that was as much fun as anything in, in all my time sports writing, going around with Marvin and these characters from Brockton, Massachusetts, uh, as, as he climbed his way up, up, you know, from nothing. Well, let me, uh, let me throw this last thing at you. Looking at the 1965 article from the Hartford Current, the, um, the dean of the school really hoped that the spirit of you winning the award would guide the campus in the future to earnestly maintain its <laughs> sense of responsibility and defend the freedom. So do you feel like as you, as you write your next tweet, as you tweet out whatever comes or you, you post something on Facebook, do you feel like the good people at UConn and the guardians of the Freckleton Award are not regretting their, their decision. There's a better story from my, my college journalistic career that, that probably fit in better than the Freckleton Award. When I was a sophomore in college, there was, there was a humor issue. It was the Connecticut Daily Campus was the name of the paper. And every April 1st, they would change it to the Connecticut Daily Scampus. And it would be the humor issue, you know, and you'd write all this outlandish stuff. And, about three years before I, I, I got there, there had been an editor named McGurk who on the, the Daily Scampus had, uh, had, had written a lead story and had a picture of, of the president of the school, Albert Jorgensen, kind of with his head in the lap of the governor of the state of Connecticut, John Dempsey. And it was something like requesting school funds, you know? It, it, John and, and McGurk was, was, uh, expelled from school for that, you know? And so the, the, yeah, wow. and, it, and it was, a, it was a big situation, you know, freedom of the press and all that. And they went, yeah, yeah, freedom of the press. McGurk is out of here. So that was like the legend of, of this scampus thing. So you, you wanted to, to make it kind of, um, raunchy, but not get thrown out of school and, Two other sports writer guys and myself said, what can we do to add to this? And so we, we wrote this story about the University of Connecticut pocket pool team. And uh, 
and the the star of the 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 the, the pocket pool team was Richard Peters, and he had been injured, alas, and and the headline was UConn pocket pool team beats Rhode Island thirty two twenty or something with Peters out, you know, and it was a whole whole <laughs> double entendre story of you know squishy backhanders and and all kinds of different bad things. Really sophomore when I was a sophomore. And so the the thing is published and uh that Sunday every mass at the Catholic Church on campus the 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 um priest the priest gave his sermon about how disgusting this story was and everything. A guy in the state legislature held the paper up in the air in the air and said, this is what we're sending kids to college to do. And uh, we all wound up the, the entire editorial board. We wound up at the, uh, at the president's office, a guy, Homer Babbage. And he, 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 he was a new president and he just looked and he said, come on, will you, you know, and he didn't throw anybody out, but we were all properly chagrined. And, uh, that was probably why I wound up with the Freckleton Award three years later. I just want to say, I um, when I was in college, I we ran a uh, we ran a front page story on the student. We did the April Fool's issue, but nobody really seemed to know it was an April Fool's issue. And we did that. Um, Tom Clancy was supposed to be the speaker that year. He actually was supposed to be the speaker that year. And we ran a piece. Snoop Dogg had just um, Snoop Dogg had been brought up on murder charges, and we ran a piece how uh, Snoop Dogg. The headline was Snoop Dogg excited to address bitches at commencement. Uh-huh. And how he shot Tom Clancy in the drive-by and now would be speaking at commencement. And the dean called me into his office and he said, I've been getting calls about Snoop Dogg <laughs> speaking at commencement. Can you please stop this? Yeah, yeah. That's probably Good what time. set us off on this uh, winding road that we've gone on to, you know? Well, hey, listen, I'm a, I'm a huge, uh, huge admirer of, your, of, your, of your, your career, obviously, and your work and your books. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Great to do. I want to thank today's guest, Lee Montville, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Lee on Twitter, at Lee Montville. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And your views are always appreciated. Music is by The Sizzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.